If you're um, familiar with the comedian uh, Jim Gaffigan, he is tremendous, first off. Uh, he's pasty white, like me. Uh, in fact, one of his albums is actually called Beyond the Pale. Okay? Uh, he's a very pale guy, talks about that a lot. But in one of his, um, one of his bits, he talks about camping. Okay? And he hates camping, like myself. And so another similarity. But he talks about how he's amazed that we can even convince people to camp any longer, right? Uh, you can convince people to burn a couple vacation days and, and sleep outside, right? Uh, and become covered with a rash afterwards. Um, he talks about how you know, everybody says, oh, camping's a tradition in my family. And he says, well, it was a tradition in everybody's family until they invented the house, right? Um, he talks about how, like, when you go camping at the RV parks, it's kind of cheating, right? Because you're sitting there, and you look over, and you see a guy with a Winnebago, and you say, oh, that's what I forgot, my house, right? Um, he talks about all these kinds of things, how camping is just this sort of hilarious activity that we still do, right? Uh, we, we bundle ourselves in sleeping bags, which is kind of like, you know, just prepping ourselves for the bears, you know? Might as well wrap ourselves in a nice plastic wrapper, sprinkle ourselves with honey, Right? Uh, and just invite the bears. So all these things he talks about, um, and it's just, it's hilarious because he describes himself as an indoorsman, not an outdoorsman, but an indoorsman. And uh, I would describe myself, if you know me, in, uh, in similar fashion. But he talks about how the phrase that we use, right, the phrase of happy camper, he's a happy camper. It's kind of an oxymoron, right? At least in his mind, because he doesn't like camping, of course. And he says the only happy camper is the camper leaving the campsite, right, uh, and going home. And so he talks about how this is just this sort of oxymoronic uh, phrase, okay? When you get to First Peter, if you noticed, in verse 1, he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he lists, lists these, these regions, which are sort of in present-day Turkey, all right, right now. Um, but elect exiles. That phrase, it should strike you. It sounds like a contradiction. It sounds like an oxymoron. How can you be exiled, disfavored, right? Rejected, expelled. How can you be exiled and yet also chosen? Elect. Privileged. They don't seem to go together, right? It seems like contradictory phrases. And of course, the reason for this is because, as we know, Peter is writing to people who are undoubtedly suffering, undoubtedly persecuted, most likely uh, primarily Jewish audience that's been expelled from Jerusalem, now finds themselves in these other regions, expelled from the holy city, uh, away from all they know, and they're struggling. But it makes sense, right? I mean, Christ himself tells us that uh, the student is not above the teacher. And so if Christ himself suffered, then of course we know it's the path of his followers as well. In fact, it's pretty amazing when you, when you, when you take, take note of how many of the texts in the New Testament are born out of suffering, are born out of trial. And the audience here at First Peter is no different. They find themselves in the throes of adversity, in the throes of persecution, and it's then that Peter writes them and says, to you, elect exiles. 
And like, like a happy camper, it seems contradictory. It seems like an oxymoron. And yet Peter wants them to know, and he wants us to know this morning as well, that our citizenship on earth, our citizenship in the earthly city, it sometimes takes us through hell and back. It sometimes does bring us through the trials and the tragedies. We, we, we saw what happened just this weekend in Paris. More, more pertinent to our own lives, I mean, we, careers fizzle out. Jobs come, but then they, they go and they're lost. Our families are, are close-knit together, and yet at times they fray and they disintegrate. And tragedy comes in. Addictions, we, we, we overcome them, but then they rear their ugly head down the road and once again suck us in. Sickness comes, disease comes, tragedy comes in all of these forms. You see, Peter wants us to understand, just like the original audience, that our citizenship in the earthly city will sometimes bring us through the valley. It brings us through tragedy. It brings us through trial, it brings us through these periods of exile where we look around and we say, is God even here anymore? Does he even care? Has he forgotten? But Peter wants us to also know, this is why he pairs those two seemingly contradictory words, elect exiles. He wants us to understand that though we have a citizenship in the earthly city that sometimes brings us through hell and back, Thankfully, by God's grace, we have a citizenship in heaven. We have an election. We have a choosing by God, simply by his grace, that is completely and totally inalterable, unchangeable by the situations of our life. No matter what we find ourselves in the midst of this morning, suffering, temptation, addiction, discouragement, doubt, Whatever we find ourselves currently in the midst of, it doesn't change the fact that God, before the foundations of the world, has looked down and he's chosen you by his grace. And he's elected you. And he says, though you might be in exile, personally, in your family, in your job, as a church, as a people, if you find yourself in exile, it doesn't change your election. It doesn't change your standing before God because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done. And so Peter wants us to see right off the bat that our present circumstances don't define us. That when we're prosperous, when things are going well, when things are just totally great, we can't take credit, right? Because we understand that even that happens under God's sovereign care and sovereign watch. But likewise, when we find ourselves Persecuted, when we find ourselves tempted and tried, that doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. But that too happens under the watchful and sovereign care of our Heavenly Father. Verse 1 teaches us that we have this identity that's fixed in His graceful election and calling. But if you look at verse 2, He says, All of this is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You see, verse 2 reminds us that we not only have an identity, but we have an importance. We have an importance 
in the mind and the heart and the plan of God. And the reason we know that is because Peter here wants you to see that all of the Godhead, the fullness of God was involved in your salvation. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son was at work in your salvation and is still at work in your life now. He wants to sort of harness this Trinitarian power and get you to understand that the fullness of the Godhead, all three persons were involved in your salvation. You have the foreknowledge of God, right? The architect of salvation, who before eternity passed, chose you, selected you, decided to adopt you by his grace. You have the architect of salvation. Then you have the atoner himself. You have Christ the Son, who laid down his life, who lived that perfect life first, and then laid it down for your salvation. The architect of salvation, the Father, the atoner, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who has now sprinkled you with his blood. What does that mean? It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of an allusion back to the Old Testament. The day of atonement, when the priest would go in to the mercy seat, and after making the sacrifice for sins, he would take the blood of the lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the ark. He would sprinkle it on the mercy seat to propitiate, to turn away God's wrath, and to render the people holy once again for a time. What does Peter say? Christ, the atoner, the superior lamb, the lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world, he has come now and sprinkled you with his blood. And you are holy once and for all. God the Father, the architect. God the Son, the atoner. And then God the Spirit, the one who applies the benefits of all those saving works to you. He comforts you. He encourages you. He applies that finished work into your life. The fullness of God was at work in your salvation, and the fullness of God is still at work in your life today. If you're like me, I try to associate everything with like random illustrations or sports usually. And for me, when I read this passage, I thought, you know what that tells me? God is not like Greg Popovich. Now, I've lost like most of you, maybe. Greg Popovich is the head coach of the San Antonio Spurs, okay? Tremendous head coach. He's won, what, four or five now NBA titles. But one criticism that Greg Popovich gets sometimes is that during the regular season, he will, like, rest his superstars. He'll rest his starters because he wants to sort of save their energy for the playoffs. It's actually very smart, okay? But he gets flack for that because if you bought a ticket, right, to see the Heat versus the Spurs and you see Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh on the Heat, right, but you don't see Tim Duncan for the Spurs, so you sit on the bench that night getting rest, you're disappointed, right? Greg Popovich has held something back from you. Uh, you deserve more, right? First Peter says, in the economy of your salvation, God has held back nothing. All three persons of the Godhead. The Trinity is at full work in your salvation and full work in your life. This is just the first two verses. This is rich. This is a rich letter. We'll, we'll move faster. Don't worry, okay? Uh, look at verse 3, though, for a second. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Uh, take your Bible for a second and flip over to Matthew chapter 16. Go to Matthew 16. What does this see something here? If you're familiar with Matthew 16, um, right there in the middle, so verse 13 through 20, um, Peter, 
confesses Jesus as the Christ. He makes this great confession, uh, and it's after that that Christ promises that on the faith that Peter expresses, Christ will build his church. With that great kind of foundational passage, Peter is like, he's flying high, he's doing well. But what does he do right after that? Uh, Look at verse 21, chapter 16. From that time, Christ began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Christ turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You can go back and flip back to 1 Peter. Um, What's amazing here is what does Peter say in verse 3 here? 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us a living hope through the resurrection of of Christ. What's amazing is that the stumbling block for Peter when he was in the life of Christ, the stumbling block for Peter was this idea of adversity. As soon as Christ starts talking about the adversity the Messiah would suffer, Peter says, not on my watch. And that's the very thing that causes him to stumble. What's amazing though is that you fast forward to the letter of 1 Peter And Peter actually begins to get the reputation. He's called by many the apostle of hope. The apostle of hope. And you can see it in his very words here. I mean, the opening section of 1 Peter is tremendously, tremendously hopeful. And as we know, what's happened? Well, Peter now writes on this side of the resurrection. He says, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection. You see, Peter had his fear of suffering shattered. He had his fear of trial and tragedy. He had, it, he had it shattered through the resurrection of Christ. And here's how that works. Take your Bible one more time. Flip back just a couple books to the books of, book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. Looking at verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those, this is us as well, deliver all of us who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What does that remind us of? That Christ in the resurrection has shattered the greatest of all of our fears. The fear of death. I've said this before and I can't help but say it again because I'm obsessed and you know that. But Jerry Seinfeld, right, the great comedian, uh, better than Gaffigan, dare I say. um, Seinfeld reminds us in one of his older bits that the number one fear in America is death. Number one fear in America is death. And he says what that means then is that at a funeral service, most people would rather be in the casket uh, than giving the eulogy. Why? The number two fear, I'm sorry, I got it backwards. Number one fear in America is public speaking, right? This is why I should be afraid of it, right? Uh, Number one fear, public speaking, right? Number two is death. 
which means that at a funeral, again, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy, right? And he does it to kind of highlight this idea, right? Uh, well, this great fear of death, though, what are, we, what are we told here? What are we told, right? That Christ has conquered it through the resurrection. And so if he's conquered our greatest of fears, then every other subsequent fear of ours, the fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of tragedy and trial, every other fear is overcome as well because of the death and resurrection of Christ. We have a living hope. There's a song that uh, we'll sing, but I love these lyrics. You've heard it before. It says, His be the victor's name who fought the fight alone. Triumphant saints no honor claim. Their conquest was his own. By weakness and defeat, Christ won the glorious crown. He trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. What though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. And here's the the key verse for this text. He in hell and hell lay low, made sin he sin overthrew. He bowed to the grave and destroyed it so. And death, by dying, slew. Amen. You see, that's the hope of the gospel, right? That's the living hope through the resurrection of Christ that Peter reminds us of. The greatest of fears, the greatest weapon the devil can wield has been stripped of its power. And if that's been stripped as well, then every other fear that we live under, exile, persecution, tragedy, rejection, every other fear has been stripped of its power as well. But if God is the God of resurrection in the end of our life, he's also the God of resurrection in and through our lives. And as long as the resurrected one is on his throne, we always have hope. We have hope that our estranged relationships can be reconciled. We have hope that our careers, which are stuck in neutral, can be revived. We have hope that that addiction, which paralyzes us, can indeed be overcome. And even here at Coral Ridge, we have a hope that though our church has been through trials, though it's been through a season of adversity, we have hope that God is on his throne and he will always do the work of resurrection. There's always hope for us. But then finally, keep, keep moving with me. Verse four, we've been given a hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, Peter reminds us that we are saved by something, the resurrection, and we're saved to something, which is an inheritance. And it's an inheritance that never fades, never spoils. It's unchangeable. You might remember there was a commercial uh, a few years back for DirecTV where um, they were reading the terms of an inheritance and you have this like really, really wealthy guy who not only has the first wife but has now his like trophy wife Um, and she's like scantily clad and they're here in this office, big mahogany desk uh, and they're reading the terms of um, this rich dead man's will. And what is the inheritance going to be? And so, of course, he leaves nothing to the first wife. He leaves everything to the trophy wife, and she's ecstatic, and so are her attorneys. Um, and then there's the son, 
of the rich man. And what does he get? He gets full access to this man's gigantic DirecTV DVR collection. All right? And it's a commercial to basically advertise how impressive DirecTV is. Okay? It's the greatest thing you could ever get. Right? And the man is going insane, the young kid. Like he's so ecstatic that he gets full access to this gigantic DirecTV uh, recording collection. It's that good. Okay? Uh, here in 1 Peter, he wants us to see we have an inheritance. Right? Not, only can, uh, not only can trial and tragedy not touch our identity, which is fixed, but it also can't touch our destiny as well. Our destiny to, to truly share in the inheritance of the true Son, Jesus Christ, because of what He's done for us. God says, You're part of my family. You're grafted in. You're adopted. And if, if mafia movies, right, if mafia movies have taught us anything about family, right, it's what? You don't mess with it, right? And this is now not the Godfather speaking. But God the Father, okay, right? And he's saying, these are my children. They are mine. They have an identity. They have a destiny. And nobody can shake that. No tragedy, no trial, no rejection can alter that. It's as if our inheritance is tucked away in that, that Swiss bank account, right? Not in the banks that you and I use, where you've got to wait in that like zigzag line, behind the rope, and then you got to use that pen, which is chained to the desk, right? That instills confidence in you, right? Makes you feel important. Uh, no, your inheritance is locked away in a Swiss bank account, the ones that you see in the born identity, where there's like velvet bags and private rooms, right? That's where your inheritance is. It says, tucked away in heaven, guarded by God's power. So then all of this then, all of this, and we're almost finished, all of this moves us forward, right? Verse 6, in this, so in everything Peter has just said, and all these realities of our salvation, in this, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you, re- you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter wants us to see these are the reasons in this, in the realities of your salvation, is why you can rejoice in the midst of any trying situation that comes your way. And it doesn't make it easier. It doesn't dull the sting of trials, but it gives us a hope. And it reminds that in some weird way, in some way that's so much higher than our thinking, God even takes trials. He even takes difficult seasons in our lives. He even takes seasons of adversity, like here at Coral Ridge, these past few months. He even takes all of these things and he somehow, in his amazing grace, wields them and uses them for his purposes and uses them for our good. Another coaching illustration, uh, Bill Belichick, right? Coach of the Patriots. Yeah, we, we, his name, he, he will remain nameless in the sanctuary, right? But uh, the coach of the New England Patriots, right? Uh, one of the things he's known for, 
is taking away the other team's best weapon, rendering it void, making your team beat them another way. Peter says that's what Christ has done here. He's taken away the devil's best weapons, suffering, trial, tragedy, and even uses those in our lives for his good. And if that wasn't enough, he ends it in these last two verses, and we'll, we'll end with this. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, asking what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the prophets long ago, the prophets of old, they wanted to know, where is all this leading? Where are all these shadows in the Old Testament? Where are all these illusions and prophecies and pictures and this message of hope? Where is all that leading? Verse 12, it was revealed to them they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter reminds his audience that we find ourselves, literally, here today at Coral Ridge, 2015. We find ourselves on this side of the resurrection. We find ourselves on this side of that living hope. Christ, the Son of God, he came down and he lived that life that we have all, every human has failed to live. He lived that law-abiding life. And then he made atonement for you and for me by laying down that perfect life on the cross and satisfying that debt that all humanity owed. And then thankfully he rose victorious over death, over sin, over hell and the grave. And he stands now as the resurrected one. And the, the beautiful truth is that we as a church, we as a people of God, this is what First Peter tells us here in these verses, we as a people of God, we stand on this side of the resurrection. We stand on, that, on this side of the, the center of history where God once and for all put away the sins of humanity. And from that point forward, Christ has been building his kingdom. And he says, the kingdom I build, not even the very gates of hell will prevail against it. And so what Peter wants us to see is that when trials come, when seasons of adversity come even to a church like ours, it's not a sign of God's abandonment. It's not a sign of God's estrangement. In fact, it's the opposite. It's a sign that the devil is trying to throw every possible weapon at the kingdom of God that Christ is building, and that God, though, has made a promise that the work he started, he will carry to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And you as a church, and I as part of this church as well, find ourselves, it says, Peter tells us, in the very culmination of redemptive history, things the prophets wanted to see for themselves, things even angels long to look into, the building of Christ's kingdom the building of the redeemed, the calling of the elect from all the corners of the globe underneath the banner that reads, it is finished. That's what we're a part of. That's our hope. It never spoils, never fades. 
and is totally and completely inalterable and reserved in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power.